What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Arts and Data Science Happy Hour number 95. Five more until we hit number 100. Man, I hope you all can join me. If you have not already, go to uh, go to register bit.ly B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash A-D-S-O-H. That'll get all of the uh, all of the sessions on your calendar. Um, so five weeks from now, that's going to be one, two, three, four and five. That's going to be the first Friday in October. Uh, that's going to be number 100 there first Friday in October. So I'm excited about that. Man. I can't believe it's been a hundred of these already. Um, yeah. Two years, man, two years of doing this. It's been, it's been awesome. Uh, again, no more podcast. I mean, there, there is a podcast, but no new episodes have been released because I haven't recorded any. Uh, and so we'll probably uh, do a backlog of them and, and have them coming out in you know early next year, January next year. Shout out to everybody in the building. What's going on? Kenji's in the building, Christian Sunker, Peter, Russell, Jacob, good to have all y'all here. Uh, everybody that's watching there on LinkedIn, watching the live stream, you want to join, send me a message. I'll send you a link to join. Um, if you got questions on LinkedIn, please do let me know. I'm happy to take all of your questions. Uh, so let's go ahead and um, let's kick a, uh, let's kick the stream off with just a, a, a question. Um, let's talk about what content is missing from LinkedIn. I'm curious what you guys want to see more of on LinkedIn. Um, let's go to, uh, let's go to Ken. G and then we'll go to uh, Christian then Sunker if you if you want to uh, get in on that let me know uh, and if you have questions whether you're here in the chat whether you are watching on YouTube or on LinkedIn if you got questions let me know I'll be sure to queue them up Ken go for it very self-serving one but I think YouTube content is missing on LinkedIn so a lot of these different platforms they limit the amount of exposure that content from other platforms get uh, on on their individual platforms. So if I post a YouTube video on LinkedIn, it's not going to get shared. It's not going to get uh, as much reach as it would on like a more traditional platform or as like a completely organic post. And I think in some sense, I underst obviously understand why LinkedIn's doing that. But if you're creating a marketplace to share ideas, professional things, it does make sense to make a, a like cross-platform pollination uh, more rich and more accessible because I would be using LinkedIn significantly more if I knew that the things that I was posting on LinkedIn were still going to blow up there, not just on some of these other platforms that I use. Yeah. I've been kind of, um, I mean, it, it could just be that my content sucks and it's not good, but I've been kind of disappointed with the reach of the posts that I've been doing. Um, uh, you know, I've got a group chat going on with a bunch of other creators and and everyone's getting tremendous amounts of reach but i've noticed that recently uh within the last probably three four months maybe even since the beginning of this year actually uh post of mine it's very very rare that i get anything more than seven thousand impressions and i do not understand why that is and i'm thinking maybe a, a reason is because i do sometimes link to other content or you know i'm sharing stuff from from elsewhere um and i think if you do that too much maybe you start getting penalized by the uh by the by the algorithm but um you know i'd like to think that i'm kind of halfway decent when it comes to writing posts so uh oh, i still got much to learn um but yeah i feel you on that can christian let's hear from you yeah um just to your point harpreet too yesterday i made a post and it never even showed in my activity log and it's still not there and it's only when i search for like the first few words of my first sentence that i find it and it's very limited impressions there too. So I don't know like what's going on with that, but that was like really, really interesting to me. Um, but as far as missing content, I guess more so for me, maybe content topics. And I, I do see it 
in the data community occasionally, but I, there's such an emphasis on talking about tools in, in data. And I would like to see a little bit more on the communication side of things and maybe like technical communication to non-technical stakeholders. Uh, that would be some content areas that I would really like people to cover more often. So, yeah. Yeah, I, you know who does a good job about that uh, communication aspect of stuff? There's a couple of people that come to mind. Uh, okay. First is is uh, Gilbert Ikelenboom. I'm not sure if you've uh, followed him already. I do not. Uh, no. Yeah, definitely check him out. He's got okay. um, he got this book called um, uh, I think it's called People Skills for Analytical Thinkers. He's been on my podcast, been on Ken's podcast as well, um, and I, actually a podcast uh, of me on Gilbert's podcast. A, a episode with me on Gilbert's podcast was just released. So if you guys get a chance to check out his podcast, oh sweet, uh, do so. Check that out. Uh, and then also um, Brent Dykes, who's like the uh, storytelling for data science guy. I'm not okay, sure with him either. He's also been on my podcast. Ken, have you had Brent Dykes on your podcast? Uh, not yet. Um, it definitely two people that I would recommend following. They they definitely got content. Uh, around yeah, them. I think uh, what's her name? Cole. Uh, I can't. Yeah. Uh, Nesson mom. Yeah. Um, I'm having her in a couple of weeks. She's nice. also a big storytelling and, and more soft skills slash tangible, like personal development skills that intersect with, uh, with the data skills. Nice. Okay. I've been trying to get on the podcast for like two years and every time she's like, no, I'll be like, come on, <laughs> come on. <laughs> if I was Kenji, would you like me any better? Probably, probably. Uh, but, uh, let's hear from, uh, Sankar, Sankar, any, anything that you uh, would like to see more of on, on, uh, on LinkedIn, then we'll go to Peter. Uh, by the way, those of you watching on LinkedIn, um, uh, let me know if you got any questions. Shout out to uh, Raphael in the uh, in 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 the in the LinkedIn chat saying LinkedIn reminds me of an old version of YouTube. Um, I'd like to hear more about that. Paul Fentress, what's going on, Paul? Uh, wondering what the theme of today's discussion is, and the theme, as always, is whatever you want it to be. That's the wonderful thing about these artists of data science happy hours. They are a pick your own adventure type of session. So whatever it is that uh, that you're interested in uh, asking or want to talk about, Paul, do let me know. Uh, that being said, Sunker, go for it. Yeah. Um, I'd probably just sec, uh, piggyback a little bit off Ken, just that I don't see a ton of like, you know, obviously there's a lot of really, really good data science content on YouTube that I've been following um, that I don't see circulated at all in my feed as much. Um, as sort of a nascent creator, if I would even call myself that, I think my sample size is really small. So um, yeah, I, I still have to figure out the ropes of, you know, what the LinkedIn, you know, SEO, rec uh, the recommendation algorithm is doing versus, you know, some other uh, content curation sites, but yeah. I will probably just punt on the uh, on the answer to that to someone who has a little bit more experience. Yeah, what are you uh, up to content creator wise? Do you got like a YouTube channel or anything you want to uh, shout out or, or podcast? Yeah, no, uh, no YouTube channel. I'm just starting to write uh, a little bit of blog posts right now. Just doing I have a couple of articles on towards data science, um, popular one on Medium, but just trying to follow as many creators as I can. Um, still really exploring my you know data science um, creative side. I've been yeah, so so still very much nascent in that in that exploration. Right on, man. Well, it is a roller coaster of a journey. I can assure you that. Uh, just kind of stick with it, man. Just that's that's the best advice I can give to you. Uh, do you want to shout out your medium uh, name at all? Do you have like a special username or just? Yeah, my username is not special at all. It is a string of characters and letters. Uh, or sorry, characters and numbers. So it is all lowercase s one Sreev. 
That's S-R-I-N-I-V. Uh, yeah. Um, awesome. Planning to write a little bit more, create a little bit more. And uh, yeah. Well, definitely put your put your uh, put a link to your blog right there in the chat, and then I'll be sure to uh, copy it out over there onto uh, LinkedIn. Shout out to Vin Vashista, Mark Freeman, Alexis Press, and Tron in the house. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, we're just kicking off the discussion, just talking about the kind of content that we think is missing from LinkedIn and what you'd like to see more, most of. Uh, we'll go to Peter next. Uh, Mark, Vin, uh, if you all got any uh, input, it is always welcome. Shout out to Russell. Russell looks like he's having some issues with uh, connecting the audio, but I think we'll have you here soon. Go for it, Peter. Yeah, sure. Um, thank you so much, uh, Hapri. Um, like I've been so looking forward to joining this uh, <laughs> um, artist of data science. I've always been looking forward to it, and now I have the pleasure to be here. So, um, I would say what I'm really looking forward uh, to see, like content wise, is uh, re regarding like pure like motivation. Uh, for like entry level people trying to get into data science, like I mean, like coming from a non technical background, like it has been very difficult for me to you know enter data science. Like, and most of the content that I see is like from people who are you know already in the data science field, and you know they they're they're crushing it, right? So, like for people who are looking to get into data science, they don't know how hard it is, you know, so they don't have like that raw motivation to get started, right? So I'm really looking forward to that type of content. Yeah, I got a couple of good names that come to mind, uh, just that kind of uh, need for sure. Uh, Avery, Avery, uh, uh, I'm going to blanking on his last name, Avery for sure, uh, uh, Data Career Jumpstart, uh, check out Avery, Avery Smith, yes. <laughs> um, then also uh, Rashad, Rashad uh, Neves uh, Becker's got some awesome stuff as well, uh, kind of directed towards that. Um, but I've been seeing a lot of lot of cool up and coming uh, content creators lately. You know, uh, your Christian's one of them. I'm blanking on some names. Uh, Dylan, <laughs> Dylan's one. Uh, I can't remember his last name. Uh, and a couple other people. Matt, names will come shot. to you. Megan, I, yes, yes. Yeah, Megan's, Megan's awesome. Yeah, Megan's. Uh, she's also been on my podcast as well. Uh, we talked about um, data engineering, stoicism, and like personal wellness and stuff so definitely check out the uh, uh episode uh with her um yeah let's go to uh, let's go to mark and let's go to vin again we just opened the floodgates uh i know it's, it's you're not supposed to talk about on linkedin on linkedin live stream but question is uh what is it that um you think is missing from linkedin and by the way if you got questions uh let me know mark go for it yeah i i think something at least in the in the data space is i really wish there's more content on the build versus buy arguments and how are people playing that because a lot of the arguments I see is just like trashing or promoting a specific vendor or tool. And I think they, I think that that kind of content is like, it's interesting, but without the context of like why you would do that, I think it does, it's not that helpful for the larger community. So like, for example, um, I know like the ML ops community does uh, like pancake stacks, where they talk about their stack and how they kind of, put those pieces together and the reasoning behind that, because there may be a group where like using Fivetran to do like their data uh, ingestions, right? Into the warehouse. That may make a lot of sense for, for other people that may not make sense. For example, like the, what they need to connect to, this is just not part of their, their connections, right? And so I feel like deeper conversations of like the trade-offs they're making of like why they choose a vendor, why they don't, um, and just at a high level, you don't even like share your business <laughs> details and things like that. But I think having that nuance of like, this is the case study 
this is the context and this is why we think this is better. Mark, thank you very much. Let's go to uh, let's go to Vin talking about the content that he thinks missing from LinkedIn, and then also I'd love to uh, just kick off the discussion there with Vin about the uh, build versus buy debate, and if anybody has anything to say about the build versus buy debate, uh, just let me know. Just raise your hand, and I'll be sure to call on you. Uh, Vin, go for it. I think build versus buy it depends on how big of a company you are. If data science or whatever you're buying isn't a core capability, then or a core competency, buy. You know, why Why build up an organization that isn't going to support a core business? And I think we've forgotten that. Like in data science, we've completely abandoned that. Every business is developing every data science capability instead of buying from really smart people who have already done it before. So, you know, the build versus buy debate, that's my thing is just look at your company. If it doesn't support core business, like why why build the capability to build it? So that. That's where, you know, I kind of fall down because there's so much good stuff out there that other people have figured out. And, you know, you were talking about one group that was sharing Uber all the time shares. LinkedIn talks about building out their stack a lot. I think Netflix has an entire series on building out their stack. And more and more companies are just coming out and saying, look, this is how we built it. Because here's the stuff that was out there that was awesome. And here's the places that we had to customize. And I think that's the important piece. The customizations come around core business. I haven't worked at developer tools company for the last, you know, year, three different developer tools companies. That is the single most biggest um, obstacle that our salespeople face is that people are always like, oh, we'll just do this in-house. And um, that's a hard objection to overcome. And I think it's just got to frame it as don't you got better things to do with your time? Uh, we've got this solved solution. Um, how would you like, okay, let, you know, let's give some advice to salespeople out there. Um, Vin, how, how, how would how do you handle that objection? Like if, if you were in a sales role, I know you, you kind of got like a sales-ish background like way back in the days, right? How would you uh, handle that objection? Uh, and then after uh, after Vin, we'll go to uh, to Mark. Shout out yeah, to uh, the, Joe the Reese and Kiko. Sorry, go for it. No, uh, uh, the objection is kind of easy. I just ask, what's your core business? Does that support your core business? Why are you developing that? And the that line of questioning right there is what gets people at the strategy level to stop and go, wait a minute. Yeah. Why, why are we, wait a minute. So we're building this thing. We're creating capabilities and it's not going to at any point support our core business, you know, and that's the, that's really the best way to do buy versus build is when you're pitching it, just ask, is that, you know, you're going to build this thing. Great. What do you do with those people after it's built? You know, are they going to support core business? Cause if they are, yeah, awesome. You know, hire them, do this thing. And then you know, put them on to the next value producing thing. But more times than not, they'll hire an entire team. They'll build this stack up for them that they could have bought and it would have been cheaper. And then they have no idea what to do with the people. And so they start doing like different projects that get them off track from their core business. And that's when you're looking at a lot of businesses right now, they're doing layoffs. It's all that cycle where they brought in too many people and they were building stuff they didn't need to and reinventing the wheel. And as far as what content's missing on LinkedIn, I need more Ben Taylor. Like I call his style data science swagger. We need way more data science swagger. We need like, we need that so much. This is actually the sexiest job of the 21st century. We need to start acting like it because we don't. And we need more Ben Taylors. Yes, straight up. I think I can try to help fill that void. I'm gonna try to try to do my best Ben impersonation. Thank Vin, thank you so much. Uh shout out to uh Joe Reese and Mikiko in the building. Uh just a quick primer. We're uh talking about the build versus buy debate. So if you got any uh, you know, 
tips on that or any insights do share. We'll go to Mark, then we'll go to Ken. If anybody else wants to uh, jump in, please do just raise your hand. If you're watching on LinkedIn or on YouTube, uh, let me know. If you got questions, happy to take them. Go for it, Mark. Ben just undercover told us we're all boring. So uh, <laughs> joking, joking. Uh, one, one thing that I think about, not necessarily like selling into an org, but selling within an org um, and like trying to like build out use case and like build out data infrastructure is I, I definitely get pushback for buy things um, because we're a startup. We're like, are we sure we want to spend our money there? Right. It's, it's a lot more tight. And so I really have to, to make the case um, for it. And well, a great way for, to make a case to buy something is for people to feel pain and make it their pain. And so what I do, uh, I work with my manager, I identify like, what is the quickest way to drive like value and show like this can become business critical in a way, or not business critical, but like drive, drive value in a way that's going to be used throughout the business and then find the simplest way to implement it. And then clearly state, Hey, we didn't want to buy. We're going to build this quick thing here to show kind of like what the value can bring. And if you agree that it brings you value, this is the point which it won't scale anymore. And you actually need to do something right with it. And uh, that's often worked pretty well for us because it convinces them that it does bring value. And then also convinces them that like, oh, to actually really take advantage of the value, it takes a lot of work and we don't want to put that there. And that makes the argument internally a lot easier for us. Mark, thank you very much. Uh, let's go to Ken. Then after Ken, we'll go to Christian. Yeah, it echoes a little bit of what Mark and Ben were saying, but I look at all of those decisions in terms of time, money, and utility. So just because it's going to be expensive up front doesn't mean that for the company to build something on your own, it isn't going to be significantly more expensive and time consuming. And just like what Ben was talking about, the resources after you've delivered a, a, a platform or a product, what do you do with those? There's all these uh, immediate opportunity costs that are in play. And you really have to think about, oh, between these factors, how much more value are we going to create for ourselves if we do this, if we do this now, if we do this in the future, um, versus if we like buy something off the shelf and iterate it, iterate it to, to our use case. I would also say like most of the products that I'm seeing now are highly customizable and they're components that work with other bigger systems. And I think companies are getting significantly better at just like picking the piece that they know they can be useful uh, at rather than trying to do something uh, like to own like a giant portion of your your pipelines or or your process. So, you know, to me, if I'm trying to sell something like that, it would be really talking about like, hey, we're, we're just here to help you with this part that we specialize on and you don't specialize on the time and money associated with this over the next three years, five years, 10 years, it's going to be 100% in your favor if you're doing something off the shelf. Ken, thank you very much. Christian, go for it. Yeah, I can just speak to kind of the, the pieces aspect. Um, currently, uh, I'm seeing the build versus buy debate um, in my current work environment. But uh, what happened is we're, we've decided to own the actual data engineering and modeling pieces. And then all of the data visualization and dashboarding is going to be outsourced to um, an off-the-shelf company um, to actually build like a, the portal and the application to access the data through Power BI. So uh, there was a lot of debate there because there needed to be 
some internal ownership of the data and some of the stakeholders just wanted to outsource all of it, including the engineering and the modeling. But we found that it was strategic to keep that secret sauce internally and then just have the dashboarding being done externally for those applications. Christian, thank you very much. Uh, Joe or Mickey, anything to add here? Um. I guess the, the, the question I always ask when build versus buy comes up is, um, you know, is it a core competency or, or is it not? Right? To me, that's really the uh, core competency to the business is what I mean, too, right? Is it something that's core? Then you should build it. If it's not, then you should, it's a strong argument. You should buy it. It's the same argument. I, I, I People are probably tired of hearing this, but it's, it's like, uh, I mean, if you have to go buy car tires or if you need car tires, like do you make them from scratch or do you go buy them uh, at, the, at a tire shop? Um, so if you make them from scratch, it'd be pretty badass. Actually, you should tell me how, how you do that. But, uh, for the most part, I think that the answer is pretty self-evident and that's, I think it's, it's how I view the build versus buy debate. Um, but then again, the tendencies for engineers to want to engineer stuff, right? The, 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 you have the title engineer and you in, you know, and so you, you think you should get paid to, uh, you know, to, to build as many things as possible. So that's, uh, you know, where, where it gets, um, you know, a bit more complicated. So. Yeah, when I was very early on in my career, uh, anytime anybody would suggest buying like a tool from a vendor, I would automatically like kind of get offended, be like, well, what, you don't think I'm smart enough to build this? Like, I, I could do this. Like, what are you talking about? Why well, we got to pay somebody? I could do this. Uh, I could definitely resonate with that instinct to just want to try to at least do it ourselves. Um, but then once you find out how difficult it is, you're like, God damn, probably should have gone another way. Uh Mickey, go for it. And then we got a question coming in from LinkedIn after Mikiko from uh, Paul Centris. Great question. I think it's a good question for uh, a lot of people in, in this audience. This is going to kick off a good debate. Uh, Mickey, go for it. Uh, while we're waiting for uh, for Mickey, shout out to everybody that's joining. Uh, if you're watching on LinkedIn, if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to smash that like and uh, give this thing a reshare. Uh, if you saw this come up on Twitter, do give it a retweet, you know, try to help spread the word, y'all. Uh, see if Mickey goes, Mike has uh, started out. Uh, Give it, give it a, give it a test. We'll go to Paul's question and then we'll uh, circle back to you. Uh, so Paul's question uh, is is uh, related to business and machine learning. And in this scenario, where the business is asking to implement machine learning, but does not yet have a data infrastructure set up, like a data pipeline to continuously collect data, cloud storage, et cetera, et cetera, is it better to suggest to start with data engineering? before diving into ML. Let's go to uh, Joe for this one first. Oh, geez, I love softballs. Um, <laughs> yeah, you should definitely dive head first into uh, AI and uh, ML um, without data pipelines for sure. I think that's a, definitely a really, really smart way to go about it. Um, you should definitely dive into AI and ML without really having any data in the first place um, and definitely do it. Um, I strongly encourage you to have no real objectives with AI or ML as well. Like that's a, that's a really good way to... Um, uh, to succeed with ML. And so, uh, uh, and if you take my advice seriously, you will probably fail at everything that I just said. So, so I, I, in all seriousness, I would say data engineering is a great place to start. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, it, it helps you set the foundation for things. I mean, I, I actually got into data engineering precisely because I was a data scientist tasked with uh, building, um, you know, I expect to do magical things without any data or infrastructure to support it. And I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people on this uh, call who can relate to that situation. Um, that's a situation where you're set up to fail. So, um, yeah, I think data engineering is a really good thing to start with. 
curious what other people have to say though. Yeah, I'd love to uh, let's see, Mickey, if your uh, mic is is back up and running. Can you hear me now? Yep. Okay, great. Damn you, Yeti! Again, foiling me and my best intentions. Um, as someone who's in the ML ops space, I totally agree with Joe. Uh, fail at all the things. No. Um, no, I, I like. I agree. I also think too. Like the 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 ladder is kind of like not super linear. Like you're gonna have to make iterative improvements on like data, and then on your like the application and code around the data, which includes models, but not is not always models. And then you have to improve the data. And then a lot of times it's a little bit more like you're like walking on stilts, and one stilt is like the data stilt, and the other stilt is like the data science ML stilt, and you're just kind of like making your progress forward. And I think that's like the only thing I, I would sort of point out. But I think at the end of the day, like everything is still data. I mean, I know some people will argue that technically everything is pipelines, but um, you know, like even for example, Andreing for the longest time was like, oh, models, models, models. His new shtick is data-centric AI. Because at the end of the day, if you don't have data, whether it's small or like very, very, you know, humongous data, uh, you don't have like a well, I don't say you don't have a product or service that you can serve because you can still products and services without machine learning and like data science and companies have done that for years. Um, but at the end, at the end of the day, like models, like machine learning and like deep learning models, they add like something extra. Um, so I, I don't know for me, I'm like, I think we're all valuable and we should all get along and like collaborate and all this other stuff. But I also understand that sometimes it, it makes a better like hype a better hype piece if you're like oh yeah one's more important than the other and all that jazz so yeah i think start with data but understand that it's always like an incremental progress in different areas um at different points of time uh let's see if uh if vin or or Sankra got anything to uh, to add to this or ken if you guys got any input please do uh let me know um go for it vin and then uh Sankra, if you want to go let me know just thumbs up and uh ken ken's going off camera so probably no uh go yeah, I don't, yeah i don't know about like something to add but i think the root cause of a whole lot of these different problems is that companies come into this with zero strategy and zero objectives as far as what to do with ai they've been hyped into it and they've got somebody at the company who's fallen in love with models and ai and they've got, you know, somebody from a conference that got in their ear and told them about AI and they've been reading a whole bunch of articles about, you know, and that's the thing is we got, you know, 10 years later, we still have a hype cycle. And so if a company gets into this field with zero strategy, you know, it makes me money. I mean, that's my entire business, but it's something that they should really avoid upfront. If you don't get in with this idea of what, you know, what's your first use case What's your first value proposition for this? Who are you going to bring in who can actually build this out for you in the right way rather than having somebody inside of your business try to guess? And that's really where we are right now is companies don't know enough to know where to start, but they're smart in technology. And so they feel like it's exactly the same thing. And they'll walk straight into a lot of the pitfalls and a lot of the the differences aren't understood until two or three years and 10 to $12 million later. And I think that's really the root cause of it is, and once that happens, trying to reconnect the data team with core strategy is super painful. 
a lot of stuff has to be undone and backed out and, and connected back into all the other strategies that are that have been built around technology. And that's where a company sort of matures when they realize, okay, now we have like eight different technologies. It used to be we were just using software. Now it's software, some IoT here and there. We got cloud, we have data, we have analytics. We're starting to play with models and all of them do different stuff. And we're not sure what they all should be doing. I think that's, I mean, if I had anything to add, it's really at a higher level. I think that's the root cause of the problem is we need to get companies to think about why first and then decide, okay, this is worth doing because there's enough money behind it. And typically what happens is they don't see how much value is in it for them. And so they're not willing to invest the time or the the cash up front to do it right. And they do it haphazardly as almost an experiment. And it doesn't end well until they change the way they're thinking. Well, let me ask you this, Finn. What, what are some questions that a company could ask to determine whether or not um, their machine learning fits with their strategy or their strategy fits with machine learning? Well, it's not really does the strategy fit with machine learning? That's, you know, you're starting really one question too far down the road. It's what's our relationship with, with technology and what opportunities does technology create for the business? And then when you start from that perspective, and that's what I always do with clients, so I'll flip it around. You know, don't ask what can this technology do for your business? Look at it from how does the business use technology to create value, to become more productive, to end up delivering value to customers in new ways, to save costs, to build capabilities that no one else can create those competitive advantages. How do you use that now? And what would data add to that? What would analytics add to that? What would machine learning add to that? And when you start asking that question, you go, well, I don't know how to answer that. You're right. You need somebody with technical domain expertise in the C-suite who can help you. And so that's the, you know, that's the first question that gets them thinking, oh, if we start with this from a strategy standpoint, we need a domain expert. Okay. We need someone who understands how to answer that question. Well, that means we probably need to assess our business first, you know, and there's all of a sudden a different process for this. It isn't about going out and getting a technology. It's going out and figuring out how the business should be using technology in the first place, how its customers want technology, how, you know, and just everything about that begins a different perspective on data science and machine learning. And it's so much more successful. Finn, thank you very much. Uh, let's go to, uh, let's go to Sunker. Uh, he had, um, then Mark, then Mikigo. And if you guys got questions on LinkedIn or comments, please do uh, leave them uh, right there in the chat and I'll be happy to get to them. Uh, but let's go. Yeah, let's go. Mark, uh, sorry, uh, Sunker, Mark, then Mikiko. Yeah, I just want to echo a lot of those words. I heard a funny quote at my company. Um, AI is something you only see on PowerPoint slides. Um, I think that's very apt in the sense of like the way that the term is used. You don't really see a lot, a ton of data scientists, machine learning engineers, data engineers necessarily talking about AI. Um, I feel like it's this umbrella term that sort of captured this mystic technology that's supposed to solve all of your business problems. Um, whereas it's really just a tool, right? Like the way that it's currently used in industry is really just a tool no different than previous tools, potentially more powerful in some ways, but still a tool nonetheless. Um, you know, we, when we were talking about thinking whether we want to set up data engineering and the infrastructure first versus like machine learning, it made me sort of think, 
you know, I think some companies have an attitude where they think of like these applications like AI, machine learning, but they're still not even in the mindset of te- like treating their data as a treasured asset, right? Like there, there are companies that there's a lot of questions that they can answer with their data, um, but they still haven't even like written down what those questions are. What metrics do we want to capture from our data? What hypotheses do we have that we think our data can answer? What are like the analytics use cases of our data before we even graduate to machine learning? I think you shouldn't jump the gun to like this very complex solution when you can get a ton of value through operationalizing SQL and dashboards and building out like the SLAs of your data and your metrics and things like that, right? So it's all about the data-driven culture where a lot of the value lies which is something that I think a lot of companies try to leapfrog when they, when they go straight to AI, machine learning, things like that. Awesome. Thank you very much, Michael. Let's go to uh, Mark. Then after Mark, we'll go to Mikiko and Kostub. And we've got a couple questions queued up on, um, on LinkedIn from Singita. They have to do with uh, NLP. Um, so I'm wondering if anyone here is an NLP uh, expert or enthusiast, let me know because I don't know much about that field. But I'll ask the question nonetheless after we get through uh, um uh, Mark McKeek on Coast up here. Uh, great question that you kicked off, Paul. Hope you're enjoying the responses. Uh, go for it, Mark. Yeah, one one thing that I'm I, I'm thinking about is that we've had enough time in our industry where people are like aware that you can't just jump into ML. I mean, people are still making that mistake, but there's also now enough people that have been burned by it. So I'm also noticing this weird thing where you'll be in an organization where the culture is one on one end. They're like, hey we should totally do ML and just jump into it. And on the other end, they're like, hey, we've been burned by ML before. We're not that interested. And now you have to basically find the middle ground between both sides where one on one end, you have to like make it seem as if there is a true business case for it. But on the other end, not hype up the other crowd to say like, oh, we're jumping into ML right now. Um, I don't know that's very clear. It's still like a raw thought in my head right now. But that's been an interesting thing for me to navigate recently is simultaneously building the business use case while not getting ahead of ourselves. And it's a it's a tricky balance because if you go too far in one direction, um, you you lose momentum. And so you have to find this like quick iteration, quick wins that lead to that that larger use case. Mark, thank you very much. Let's go to uh, Mikiko, then Kosteb. And if you got questions, uh, let me know and I'll queue them up. Go for it, Mikiko. Yeah, I was catching up with um, some folks at like this happy hour and SF um, at like the race summit. And someone from the MLS community was like, he basically said something along the, along the lines of people realize they have a data problem uh, when they start doing like ML, which I thought was great. Um, and he said in the middle of a very long rant about how he's at a company that I think a, a lot of people would hear it. They, like they, if you were to know the company, you would be very surprised that they, of a lot of companies out there would have like data problems. Um, but I think that it's kind of interesting. It's something that I do kind of feel like is a little bit lacking in terms of the thought leadership and content out there is like, what does it really take both from teams 
um, both like ones that are service-based and ones that are infrastructure-based, um, especially ones that are building like platforms that kind of span a couple different domains. Like what does it really take to successfully like implement those like platforms um, and also build like the culture and maturity around it? Because if you were to look at a lot of the content out there, sometimes it's like really complicated like enterprisey architectures where it's like, we would never ever actually want to re-implement this. Like if we could just throw it all away, we would. And in some companies they are throwing it all away, like Twitter and Uber, like they are like getting rid of a lot of their custom in like built um, internal like data and ML platforms uh, to go for the buy solution, right? Um, but also too, like there is this kind of incentive among like, you know, all vendors and all that to basically say like, we're positioning ourselves as like the point solution. Something I think that even though I, I don't agree with the modern data stack concept, like something that they did very well was they were able to kind of package up like and partner certain sort of uh, companies and to provide a very succinct, you know, value prop of like, this is what you get out of it. And this is like how they like integrate and how they compare and all sort of stuff. Like they won, not just because individually those companies were great, but because they decide to, hey, like we're gonna present like an, an overarching way of how to view like data, right? Um, and I, I kind of think that's sort of, that's missing a little bit, frankly, in like the MLOps space. Um, not saying that people should come up with an MLOps stack, but there isn't a lot of like this kind of nuanced sort of perspectives and thought leadership around, hey, like we don't always need to be like, you know, push, like pushing forward our individual domains but what does success look like in you know, different companies or industries and different maturities that utilize like multiple teams and domains? So like, that's something I've been thinking about like a lot, but I thought it was still funny. The whole first time people realize they have an issue with data is when they're starting to do data science, um, which is great. <laughs> Akiko, thank you so much. Uh, shout out to Gift uh, Ojibula in the uh, YouTube chat says that he loves the way Makiko and Vin explain things. I would have to agree with you, Gift. I have, have to agree with you. Uh, let's go to Kostip. Go for Kostip. Yeah, totally. They explain things in a way that just makes sense to a lot of people. So love it, guys. Um, people realize they have a data problem when they try ML. That pretty much says it all, though, right? I want to I want to flip this on its head. Like we're talking about it from the experience of a lot of people that have tried a bunch of ML, have discovered a bunch of data problems, and are now convinced because we've lived it firsthand that hey, we should look at the data, right? But let's put ourselves in the shoes of someone who has never written a line of code in their lives. They've been running their business for the last ten years or however many years, and their question is. They're sitting on a bunch of what they're told is an oil field of data, right? Um, and they're told that there's potential value there. Their question in their mind is, okay, maybe there's value here, but I don't know exactly what that value is. And I don't know exactly how much this is going to cost me. So how do I manage the risk on a huge investment? Like data engineering, which always seems to be presented more as this um, long-term vision, continuous improvement process, uh, as opposed to something like ML, which is often branded as something more experimental or experiment-driven and seems to be able to at least present more visible business value that's generated. Whereas data engineering, I mean, I feel like it's 
it's kind of like a throwback to your parents telling you, hey, you got to study hard every day. You got to do your homework every day. And you're sitting there going, but why? But the true inherent value of that is that the, the value generation of studying actually helps you do so much more further, further down in life and generate value in, in other ways. Right? And applying that because you already have the foundations, right? How do you, you know, <laughs> convince uh, organizations that that's the bit that they need to do when the, how do you make those outcomes more visible? I think that's the problem here, right? The business value generated from data engineering, how do you make that more visible? And that's kind of a question for the people here because this is not my field of expertise. Uh, well, luckily, we've got a couple of experts here. Uh, one of them wrote a book about it. Uh, Joe, do you got a, a, a answer there to Coastlub's last question? I guess if you if you're to rephrase your, your question, what um, I guess what are you, what are you looking to know? Like so, uh, essentially, I, I get the feeling that a lot of uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. If business leaders don't think like this, I'm I'm completely wrong. Maybe the thought is that hey, I I don't know what the potential value is here, so I'm going to do the thing that is kind of low investment and kind of experimental. Right, we're going to run it like an experiment, and the thing that, that that sits closer to that is ML as opposed to data engineering, where they're told, "Hey, you're going to have to get, you know, stacks of you know cloud infrastructure in to organize your data, uh, and it's going to be a few months of all of this." Right, when they might get, "Hey, we've got a data scientist who wants to come in and do a few model experiments for a few weeks." Right, um, it's a it's a lower barrier sell for them to do that. So the question is, and I think that comes from. ML being branded as experimental and very closely connected to the business value outcome. Like I can build a model that can tell you X, Y, Z about your customer, right? On the other hand, data engineering seems to be a more long-term play and the, and the inherent value that it generates is often not as visible until you have models built on top of it, right? Um, yeah. So how do you present that value in a way uh, that makes that value more visible to business leaders and that risk more um, uh, amenable to their appetite to say, actually, yeah, we do want to invest a bunch of money uh, into this. Or do they have to go that, through that cycle of trying models and think, well, actually, shit, our data is crap. We've got to fix this. So let's invest in it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, you know, in a lot of cases, I mean, we're all in the sales game, right? We're, we're trying to pitch... Uh, um, you know, data and the value you can get from it and the promise of it, right? And so there's, um, I wouldn't say there's a one size fits all answer. Um, I think people attempt to approach it from different angles and with varying degrees of success. You know, a lot of it also depends on the organization and, and the, the, how willing people are to, you know, be receptive to, um, to you know, data in their company. Some, some companies aren't data driven and that's, that's how it is. Those are probably the worst ones, actually, or the ones that are more prone to make mistakes. Because as Vin points out, there's probably no coherent strategy, and you're you're more prone to want to uh, cargo cult or um, sort of larp your way through uh, uh, doing data um, versus you know doing it in a coherent fashion. Um, but you know, I kind of look at data engineering as setting up. You know, uh, it's kind of a, a cliche, but plumbing, for example, is a really good example, right? Like. Um, if your plumbing is constantly breaking and uh, you know, or or acting in a very exciting fashion, it's not a, a good thing. Like you know, it, plumbing should be invisible, so it enables a lot of other things, like being able to take a shower, for example, or uh, do things like that. And I, I feel like um, you know, data engineering is definitely, uh, I think, a very it sets a good foundation. Uh, but 
I think as somebody, you know, Makiko pointed out, you know, you don't really know you have issues with your data until you try and do data science. And, and um, you know, and it is an interesting cell where data engineering on its own, you know, probably isn't going to give you very much unless it enables uh, data science and analytics. I mean, that's the whole purpose of it, right? It's, an, it's more of an enablement function. So, um, but again, it, it's, you know, a lot of our business comes from people who, who try and do it in reverse. You know, they, they go the data science route and, and then they end up realizing they probably should have had somebody come in. And but this this more speaks to the immaturity of the field, I would say too, right? I mean, data science itself. I mean, shit, it's only been around for what officially what DJ Patel came out with it in two thousand nine, I think, right? And the term really started taking off around the early twenty tens to you know mid twenty tens and so forth. And then we're we're ten years into this right now, and, and I think we're making a lot of mistakes, and that's just sort of the the baby steps towards getting towards you know being a a field where. You know the value is recognized. The fact we have to talk about value, I think, is indicative of um, how astray value can be sometimes uh, to to attain. If you have to keep shouting about value, you're probably not adding a lot, right? That's sort of the the rule. And so, um, you know, if, if, if you're an accountant, for example, I don't think you'd be. I don't think you're asking your uh, your accounting department, oh, what what value are you adding to the company? It's like, well, do you want invoices processed or not? I mean, your call. Or your shipping department, for example, you run a warehouse. It's like, what value do they add? You know, things. But these are well-established things. Accounting's been around since the, you know at least the 1600s, and probably arguably for thousands of years we've been doing this transactions. But data's, um, you know, with the IT revolution and stuff. I mean, you're talking about maybe the 60s when this stuff all came about, right? It's still very, very new and immature. So I, I, I talk often with people who are some of the originators of this field, and they feel very much the same way. It's like. Um, you know the data field, uh, people going back a long ways, and it's it, it's the consensus is it's still we're still in a very young field right now. And it's very immature, so things like this will happen. Your, your order of operations is going to get messed up more often than not. So hopefully, answers your question. That, that that's that's the interesting thing, right? Like I mean, I, I think we try to um, in general. I'm I'm talking like generally as a society, we try to see everything as this established professional system like you're talking to massive enterprises that want to see this you know tight solution that's really well engineered and it's like hey you're you're right we've only as a as a a world we've only been doing this for 10 years right i mean it's why you can't find very much of that talent in that you know seven to ten year uh, senior engineer kind of position that's that's really tough to find so yeah that's a lot of that is so spot on. Yep. Thank you. Nope. You just don't want to be the scientist who cried value. That's for sure. Uh, let's go to Mark, then from Mark, we'll go to Christian, and then Vin. And if you're listening in on LinkedIn, you got questions, keep them coming. I know uh, Sangeeta's got a question queued up uh, talking about no-code tools and 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 uh, conversational AI products. Um, and then Kadisha, what up? Kadisha, how's it going? Uh, it's got, got a question that I'll probably squeeze in right after this because I think it's relevant to what we're talking about right now right now but um let's go to mark christian bin then we'll get to kadisha's question definitely i want i want to talk more about that enablement piece that joe joe was talking about so i'm i'm relatively new to, to data engineering trying to try to shift over to the the dark side per se but what i do have experience with is like getting buy-in and executing and making that visible within the, within the company and i asked myself three questions uh and this is like how i position the optics of it is one the first question how is the overall company trying to position itself in the market? Um, that helps me inform kind of like where are the broader strategic goals. 
The second thing is um, to enable that, uh, that larger strategy. Who are the key stakeholders and what are their major goals to enable that? And then from there, my third question is, how can data help enable those leaders or those key stakeholders to reach those goals? And by asking those three questions, um, I'm able to really, I've done a lot of user interviews in the company. I'm able to identify kind of like where that lever point, that, uh, um, where I can really push and add value. And the key thing is then the conversation shifts from Mark built this data pipeline. That's, that's not providing value. It shifts the conversation to Mark solved this problem that was really hard that helped us reach a strategic goal. And it just so happened that data pipeline was what made that happen. And so by focusing on those questions and that conversation, and when I talk to leaders, I don't talk about the tactics of doing it. I talk about how solving this larger strategic initiative. Um, and then my one-on-one with my manager who, who sees both sides um, is, uh, you know, I'm able to like nerd out with her and be like, yeah, we built this cool data pipeline, right? But for the most part, leaders don't care. <laughs> they care about the value you can bring. Thank you very much, Mark. Let's go to uh, Christian. Yeah, so um, I would say that as far as data engineering is concerned, the maintainability is what first comes to mind for me. And what I mean by that is working with like an OLTP, you know, normalized tables in a transactional legacy system, um, the accessibility of dimensions and their corresponding attributes becomes really, really cumbersome to get at when we're asked to break down just a basic BI report for someone. And I think, you know, I can't speak too much on DBT. I think they're kind of trying to bridge that gap, but I'm myself, I'm a LookML developer. So all of the transformations that I deal with are handled on the LookML front. So that really can impact performance, not having the engineering in place in the data warehouse to have a proper Kimball dimensional model. Um, and it leads to a lot of joins, which leads to slow load times, um, which users complain about. Um, and that's something that my current environment cares a lot about. So maintainability and performance are, are definitely um, dependent upon data engineering for sure for that value. Christian, thank you very much. Uh, Vin, go for it. Yeah, just to jump in on, I think we have to stop copping out and saying we shouldn't, we don't know how, we're too young. We do. We, we 100% know how. You know, in 2012, I was getting companies to spend cash on data science. We definitely know how to do this. And I'm, I wasn't the only one back then. So there are tons of people who understand how to get companies to invest responsibly in machine learning. I, I, I don't think it's that we don't know how to do it. I think it's that we're combating an entire different mentality that is trying to get the companies to buy their solution or their consulting services. And they have to do this increasing sales pitch and increasing hype cycle to rise above the noise of cloud and all the other technologies that are out there that are alternatives. And so I think we have to just as a field, stop saying we're young. I mean, if you're doing like large language models, yeah, you're right. We're, we're young in that. We don't know how to monetize those, but most companies aren't doing that. And so we know how to get money out of data. We know how to get money out of analytics and we know how to make money off of some fairly basic models. There's some infrastructure and some stuff under the curtains that they don't need to know about, but we have to stop saying we don't know how to do this. And when you see someone going the wrong way. You have to just look at them and go, that's dumb. You should know better by now. That, that, that's fair. I mean, like, 
yeah, stuff like object detection and classification from a computer vision standpoint, those things are pretty solved. I mean, just chuck a yellow at it or a detectron or a, a you know, phosphorescent end, and you're kind of okay in like 95% of cases. There's not much experimental going on there, right? I mean, it's more about understanding, oh, shit, I've better put that on, you know, side scan radar data. That's a bit different. Uh, how's it going to perform, right? It's not, it's not the biggest thing in, in the world. And we kind of understand now a lot of, Okay, images, where do you store them? How do you, you know, how do you get access to them? Uh, sure, like, yeah, you're right. We have been doing this a while. So is it just that mentality of, hey, we've got a, a hype up of products so the sellers are selling, sells the world essentially, right? Um, I, I guess it's where, where I think we are young is not so much in the people who know the technology uh, that's required. I think where we are young is in the buyer's maturity in technology, right? Like, I mean, now if you don't know the first thing about a car, someone's going to come in and tell you, oh, this car's got ABS and so, et cetera, et cetera. But like 90, 95% of cars built past 2005, right, have anti-locking anti brake systems, right? That's just normal now. But they can sell you on that, right? So is it the buyer's uh, how informed the buyers are of what we're selling. Well, I think, you know, you have to look at the company and say, look, if you were buying something that you've never bought before, wouldn't you consult somebody who knows something about it? Yes. How is this different? You know, hiring new staff is no different. You've never hired for this position before. Wouldn't you before buying you know, four to $5 million worth of people and equipment and everything else, wouldn't you ask someone, you know, if I've bought cars my entire life and I'm going to go buy a truck now, shouldn't I ask someone? I mean, yeah, the salesperson's going to be there and they're going to hype it up and I should know that by now, but shouldn't I ask someone who knows, you know, and that's the thing. Anytime you're doing a major investment, if I was looking at two different investment vehicles and I didn't know anything about either one of them, you know, before buying crypto, shouldn't you ask someone? Shouldn't, you know, and that's, that's every single one of these new technologies. It feels like we forget the basic thing. So you're investing in something that you don't know much about. Shouldn't you ask someone who's, who does, shouldn't you have a little bit of advisory help? And I mean, I'm pitching myself a little bit, but at the same time, it, it's kind of common sense. And for whatever reason, data, cloud, AI, those three, like we gone, we, we skipped it. And instead of asking people who are smart, hey, what would you do? What, what do we do first? What, do we need this? You know, do I really need a, uh, a tailgate on the back of my truck that allows me to step on it instead of stepping on the rear bumper? Is that something, you know, just kind of basic questions like that. If you've never bought a truck, you don't know. Why don't you ask someone who has that background? And that's, it, that's what I think we've left behind is just that level of common sense that this really is new. It's not like every other technology. And so we have to ask somebody. Makiko, go for it. Yeah, right. And so, so, to, so to kind of summarize from what you said and tying that back to what Joe said, it's new technology to the buyer, not to the seller, right? The technology stacks are quite well established over the last 10 years or so. But um, yeah, it's new to the buyer, not to the seller. So you need someone who can give an honest opinion. And uh, I mean, that's the, that's the bit, I mean, that's where you come in, I guess. I mean, it, the, the thing that always sticks out in my head is like execution is, is almost like where it comes down to, right? Because I kind of feel the same way about 
tech leadership and like tech leadership in data and ML a lot of times is I think at its core, it's still leadership. And I almost feel like in that regard, a lot of times leadership is actually not that complicated. It's almost like, you know, don't be a dick and like, make sure you elevate the people that report to you and make sure you don't lose the company money. I mean, there might be more fancy ways of doing it, but of saying it. And yet there are all these like magazines and articles and books written about like leadership on its own and tech leadership. And it's like, right. Okay. So if your team is like unhappy, if they're struggling in like a tech wasteland or tooling wasteland or whatever, uh, it should not be this complicated to toss up, like, let's say, for example, some diagramming tool, Miro board, get a bunch of people to give their feed, like, to, like, like, illustrate out what the system is, what are the pain points, who are, like, the key stakeholders that are being affected by these pain points, really, like, elucidate what exactly are we suffering from, and then to be able to, like, then go, okay, let's highlight what are the gaps in our knowledge, what, what do we not get? And like, just be very like humble about it. And then exactly like Vin was saying, like go then like find people who have solved those problems before and ask them for, for help or whatever. And it's, it, it's fascinating. And I feel like I see this too, like for example, just in general, like the attitude towards like consultants, right? So for example, when I was bodybuilding, I had a trainer, I had a dietitian. Um, obviously I had medical insurance or whatever. Right. Um, and I also had like a subscription to the community and all that, like, because I recognized that this was an area that no, number one, I had no expertise in. I needed help. I needed com- some kind of structure. But more importantly, the consultant was not there to provide me the motivation to become the ultimate beast that I could be, um, you know, but was instead to kind of help guide and make sure I stayed on the right tracks to get to like the optimal outcome that I still had to kind of define, right? But it's fascinating because when I tell people that, they're like, oh, it's like a waste of money. Like they're just taking you for a ride. It's a scam. Except you look at literally all the high performing bodybuilders and they all have a diet. They all have a a dietitian nutritionist. They have a PT therapist. They have um, like a, a weightlifting coach. And if they're doing something like CrossFit, they might have an entire like team dedicated to them being the best possible. They clearly recognize the value of like asking for help, of getting that guidance, of um, bringing in experts. And even if those experts are in like specific areas of being able to combine teams of experts. And it's just, it's, it's very interesting, right? Because it is a mentality switch. It's like, what do you need to do to be the best that you can be to like, actualize your full potential to, to get to the success point that you want. And a lot of times it does mean admitting that, Hey, like I'm kind of stupid. Let me go talk to someone who's smarter and get help. And it's, it, it's kind of fascinating. I think it's, it's true. Like a lot of times, like the technology space, especially around like data science, and machine learning, people are very, very reluctant to ask for help and are very reluctant to say, <laughs> we don't know what we're doing. Um, but also to like if filtering for the right, help, I think can be kind of tricky in a very like saturated, noisy environment where every vendor is like, my solution is the best. And then you're like, well, if every solution is the best, then clearly no solution is the best. Um, or any solution would, would you be just fine? Um, but it's, it's, it's something that I, I find very fascinating, um, in terms of the whole, like asking for help and like figuring out like the, the buying side 
of like a tech solution or investment. Yeah, I mean, you hire experts because they will save you time and time is like the ultimate resource, right? So if you can stand on the shoulders of giants, save yourself time, get there quicker, then why not do it? Um, thank you. Such great discussions. Uh, Paul, thank you for that question. Kicked off some great discussion. Uh, question here coming in from Kadisha that fits in nicely here. Uh, she's like, oh my God, are there anything aspiring data scientists can learn to prepare for all these data problems? Is it essentially just learning some data engineering? Uh, I'll let Mark answer this one. Sorry, I was in the chat talking about DBT and LookML, but oh. something about preparing for uh, yeah, how, being how, a data scientist or an aspiring data scientist. Well, are there any are there anything that an aspiring data scientist can learn to prepare for all these data problems? Like just learn data engineering, basically. Oh, you know, honestly, I don't think it's really the technical skills that like surprised me when I became a data scientist. Like, I think that's just the like prerequisite to get in. And then you get in there and you realize, oh, actually, this is like all communication, just understanding what's the actual need, communicating the constraints and then actually delivering on that. So most of the times, like, I actually don't know how to do a lot of the stuff in my job. I just kind of show up and I figure out the problem. And then I'm like, okay, this is the problem. I just go research and learn on the spot. And then I implement it's like go to the documents of whatever I'm implementing and just read that and like create a POC. And I'm like, okay, cool. I know how to do this. It solves this problem because there's so many problems you can go after that you actually just don't know what's worth to learn until you're actually like in it. And even more so is like, if you have to pay to learn, have the company pay for you to learn that and by focusing on their problems. Now, on the other side is like, if you just focus on companies' problems, um, you're, you're kind of tailoring your career to another company's goals. And so also being mindful of like, where are your career goals? Where do you want to take your data career? And what can you do either two ways outside of company hours and, and pick up those skills or try to figure out how to align what your interests are to company projects and make that happen. But I think, you know, I think we're data science education where it kind of messes up is that it shows you everything and gives an impression that you have to know everything and you're doing everything. When in reality, I'm using a very small fraction at given times. And it's just more so just being aware of what's out there. And then when I do have to implement it, I dive deep. Awesome, Mark. Thank you very much. Uh, let's move over to uh, Sangeeta's question. She asked quite a while ago. I think it fits a little bit nicely here. Um, uh, I feel like a lot of what we've been talking about recently might come from the perspective of you know, companies working with structured data, tabular data. Um, I might be wrong, but uh, Sangeeta's got a question here regarding uh, unstructured data. Uh, she's saying there's so many unstructured data management products coming up. Uh, managing natural language, understanding data is an open problem that a lot of people are trying to solve. What's uh, an interesting perspective or any new perspective you might have, contrarian uh, perspectives um, that you see uh, has the has business value uh, recently these days, I guess. So data management for unstructured data is kind of like the, the, the kind of gist of that. Um, any inputs here at uh, Kostub or, or, or Vin or anyone else, if anybody has input here, please let me know. Yeah. I mean, my, my answer is always two parts. First, most of the data that you have is bad and using it will be painful. You'll end up derailing yourself for years trying to make this stuff that you already have useful instead of gathering data that you can actually use and being intentional about it. 
And especially in unstructured data, it's so hard to define data quality when it comes to unstructured data. So trying to do it retroactively, like you show up, the company has seven years of historical data that's unstructured, especially in healthcare. This is huge in healthcare where everything's unstructured. And what gets put down in patients' notes and just it's bad. And it takes a long time for companies to realize that if they try to do anything with that data, it doesn't work. I mean, you can't even do a- analysis with it. So the hard answer is more times than not, unstructured data is it, it, it's something you have to just hoist and throw away and admit that there isn't enough value in this to spend the time trying to mine it or trying to build a model with it. It's always going to end. I think I said this to Albert this week on one of his comments. I said, if you use bad data, you know, it, it's basically like you're, you're, you've become Dyson because your model will never stop sucking. And that's just how it is with bad data. And sometimes the right answer is throw it away. And the second piece of it, you know, that knowledge management, you can do that because starting from scratch, you can build out an ontology. And that's where knowledge management begins is you build out a structured ontology and you gather data around it. Then you continuously improve the ontology and you are always gathering high quality data that can be used in modeling. Custom, go for it. So, I mean, the, when, when people talk about unstructured data, I, I like to ask first, is this unstructured data because it's a naturally, like, is it naturally unstructured in, or is it unstructured data because we couldn't be asked structuring it? Like, those are two very different problems, right? Like, if you can't be asked structuring it, go structure the data <laughs> and then see if you can derive some value out of it from there. But if it is naturally unstructured where it's, it's not really possible to, you know, you're, you're drawing on things that are far more, um, <laughs> unstructured data has to be far more ubiquitous, right? Like in the sense that it has to be uh, something that you can't find commonalities that you can draw proxies for, uh, that you can measure consistently for. So, yeah, we, we've got to think hard on when we use uh, unstructured data approaches in general, right? Particularly with images and videos, you can structure uh, it. Well, you can structure the collection of types of images and videos. Um, so there is, you can bring elements of structure to it that can cut down as opposed to just saying, hey, I'm going to get scrape thousands of images. No, I'm going to actually collect very specific images from a, a specific use case and all of them in a certain way and add metadata to make it more structured, right? So how do you, I mean, sometimes you just get people saying, oh, this is an unstructured data problem when really it's just not, you haven't put the thought of how do we add some structure to it that gives you meaningful advantage. At least that's what I've seen in the image space where they just get you a chunk of images and they straight off Google. Kosop, thank you very much. I got a question actually regarding uh, computer vision and, you know, kind of, I guess pre-trained models and and transfer learning in computer vision. How do you tell if you should, let's say you got a pre-trained model and you want to use it for a different kind of use case. How do I know if I should just freeze the backbone and just, you know, train the, the head or if I should keep the head, but then unfreeze the backbone? How do you, how do you know what to do? 
Oh, honestly, man, I'm not really qualified to answer that question. I, yeah. I just experiment with it. I'm still yeah. at a stage where I'm learning those intuitive uh, answers to that. Where I'm going, okay, I'll experiment a bit with this and that and see how it works. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't have an intuition built up for it yet. Yeah, I was, I was thinking, I was trying to think this through earlier today, and I was like, okay, well, you know, let's say, let's just suppose that we created a model, and this model, all this model is able to do is it can look in an image and it can say whether a particular object in the image is meant to contain or hold liquids or not. And there's a bunch of things that could hold liquids, right? There's glasses, there's mugs, there's bottles, there's aquariums, there's vases, there are bowls, right? There's all these things that are meant to hold water, right? Um, and then we can call this, you know, liquid detect net, net right? These actual names I was thinking about when I was trying to reason through this. And then let's say we wanted to to train another network. And this network, we wanted it to be able to discriminate between different types of beer glasses, right? And, you know, there's pint glasses, there's goblets, there's pilsner glasses, so on and so forth. There's a bunch of different types of beer glasses. And we can call this, you know, beer glass net. Um, intuitively, I think it could make sense, like, you know, why not train beer net with the liquid detect net backbone because liquid detect net is already good at discerning you know cups from plates right it knows that there's some low level features there that that it can we can probably use from that model uh to to discern whether something is um cup ish or glass ish or not am i making sense man or i feel like i'm sounding crazy but um yeah this mark this relates to, to transfer learning yeah uh, any thoughts there, Costa? I'm just trying to reason through this and like try to understand it. So, so you're trying to discern the difference between different vessels that are holding liquid? No, no. I'm just pr pretty much trying to tell. Okay, if I have got a pre-trained network, um, when when should I just chop off the head and train a new head? When should I keep the head and train the uh, the backbone instead? Yeah. I mean, I I try a few different things, right? Like. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you just try, are you trying to go per glass, like there's a Pilsner glass, here's a you know, wine glass, here's something else. Yeah. Those are all of your outputs for the head, but ultimately most of those things, you're, you're essentially asking which layer of my network learns yeah. the difference between a, a liquid holder and which layer of my network holds Pilsner versus this, right? Um, I, that's a very tough question. Um, you can basically, uh, there's a few things I was reading on VITs and uh, there was a, let me see if I can find it. I've got my notes somewhere. I'll, I'll send it to you in, in a DM a bit later because I've got to hunt for it. There's yeah. a thing where you can basically ablate certain areas of a neural network um, to identify or at least find uh, causal or correlatory information on what information those parts hold. So maybe that will help visibility on it, but yeah, it's a bit of an experimental process for that. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thank you, Costa. Uh, Mark, go for it. I am not a neural network deep learning whatever, but I'm just thinking through this out loud because it seems like a really fun problem is, I guess then like why you have to know which layer it is. If, it, if you know innately, like it's, um, it's giving like this output. So if the output is like whether or not it's a liquid, 
can you just uh, instead of trying to train another model on that, just say like have that be a, uh, that output become an input? So like one model says, is this liquid? Yes or no? Great. And then another one is like the shape of of the glass. Um, maybe do like some computer vision thing. Whereas like if it's if it's these this profile squares, then it's X Y Z. Have that be an input. And so that way those two models just say, is it glass or is it is it liquid? Yes. Great. Next step. Is it this shape? Boom, classify that. Would that potentially be a simplified way? Again, I don't do deep learning yeah. stuff. This is like <laughs> completely new to me. Am so, I like oversimplifying this? The, I probably am. Not an actual problem I'm trying to solve or anything. It was just me like trying to reason through how transfer learning works and how, how can I determine which part of a pre-trained network I want to I want to use for a task. But I guess the intuition is, you know, like if if you have a pre-trained model, some of the lower level layers, some of the earlier layers in the network are able to discern these like low level features. And I think a low level feature of like a object, like a glass is fundamentally different from like the cup holder, uh, not a cup holder. What is this? Whatever coaster. Um, I don't, yeah, I'm just trying to reason through, but uh, Sankar, if you got any uh, insight, go for it. Yeah, I will, um, I'll let you in on something that may or may not be commonly known uh, dirty secret data scientists, but most data scientists don't have any idea what their models are doing. They're just looking at yeah. the performance of the models. Um, so depending on what your application is, like if you need something to be interpretable, that's where you'll probably really start struggling with some of those questions. Um, but if you're just really looking at how does how will my model perform, honestly, depending on the compute constraint, you can just try both. Um, provided that you think your training data set is a good proxy for what your system will see in real life, right? But if it's not a good proxy, then you're screwed either way. Like no matter, nothing you do will make sense because you're training on bad data. Uh, thank you, let's go to that, Vin. Okay, I'm gonna be real old. Um, so it depends on, and I don't know enough about the type of model that you're using, so I'm not going to get too specific. But when you say the early layers for a glass are different than a coaster, nope. In a lot of different architectures, they're really not. Because you got to think about the the shapes that you're going to see and encounter. Those simplest patterns at the very earliest levels are really just trying to figure out what shapes are. And that's one of the big debates is, you know, should we start with something smarter and then train models on it versus relearning everything from zero every single time? So when, you, when you're asking about like what your early layers are learning, the difference between architectures is really how efficiently they learn all of those patterns and how efficiently they assemble them. And what's crazy about deep learning is your model you run it twice, it might learn different combinations. It might learn actually a completely different graph. So trying to figure out, you know, really what you're asking, which is, is there like a point at which I can take out and extract patterns and then transfer those to something else? Now, uh, you could, but I mean, you'd be re-architecting the, the model itself. You'd be changing the structure of the layers. And so it may not feed in and end up doing exactly what you want it to. So if you're trying to deconstruct your model, that's actually a really good way to understand it. But I would come at it from a more generic perspective. 
and not give it a specific task, but look at it across maybe three, four, five different types of identification tasks and work your way backwards. Don't go too far with it. Explainability on that type of a deep learning structure is, ugh, yeah. it's ugly. And so you're not going to get a lot of it. But I mean, you're asking a good question. It's just one of those questions that the type of model you're using practically, it's hard to answer. So, and I'm, you know, when I, the reason why I said I'm being an old man is because when I was doing vision for the first time, we had to build our own filters. And so I kind of understand how those really early layers work, but it's what happens after that is just more complex patterns. And it's, there's a lot of randomness in there. How would I put it that way? There's a lot of randomness in there. Yeah, thanks. I was probably thinking about it the, the wrong way. That's, that's super helpful. I was uh, inspired by there's a uh, link right here in the um in in the in the chat. Uh, and if you're listening, you can go to bit.ly forward slash deep viz. That's with a capital D, capital V, D E E P V I Z. And it's this is a pretty old video. It's like seven years old, but uh, essentially the guy and there's a GitHub repo that goes along with it. I just haven't been able to to uh, play around with it. I uh, hope to do that maybe this weekend, early next week, but uh, it essentially visualizes the layers of a convolutional neural network and it's doing it in real time. And it's just like the coolest thing ever. And actually Serge actually has a uh, chapter in his book, Interpretable Machine Learning, just all about visualizing convolutions um, and visualizing layers in, in like a computer vision model that I'm excited to, to dig into. Um, so shout out to, to Serge, um, be checking that out. Uh, but yeah, like I'm, I'm completely new to like, deep learning computer vision yeah i've been like learning the basics of deep learning like for the last year or so like i get the math behind it but now it's like okay trying to like get intuitions and it's it's uh, let's just put it this way i'm glad that I, I work with a bunch of smart phds who are uh, willing to answer my dumb questions uh in slack channels um because i sometimes feel like i am asking crazy questions but that's a hell of a learning adventure man so much fun um yeah, I spent the entire week actually this week. Um, first few days this week, I was trying to get up on image segmentation um, because we're doing an Ask Me Anything session on Tuesday, September 6th with a couple of people from from Desi, some experts talking all about semantic segmentation. I had no clue what it was, you know, what, what this was. Um, and so I spent a few days this week um, just preparing for it like I would any podcast uh, episode. So just going in and, and researching and reading and trying to play around with stuff. So I, I think it'll make for a good discussion. Uh, so if you guys can join, please do. Um, there should be a link on my LinkedIn or Twitter. I think it's pinned as a top uh, top tweet on my Twitter uh, at data science Harper. If you're not following me already, do follow me. Um, all right, guys. So thank you all so much for being here. We're going to call this one a wrap. Uh, it's been wonderful having you all here. Good to see some new faces. Sunker, please uh, do come back in the future. Peter, good to finally see you here as well, man. Waiting for you to, uh, to be here. Thanks for being here. Shout out to Mikiko, Mark, Vin, Joe, uh, Ken G, Costa, Russell, good to have you as well. And Christian, thank you all for being here. Y'all take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. Have a good long weekend. Um, hopefully you guys do something uh, fun and exciting this weekend and um, or at least just relax. Um, I'll be in uh, I'll be in San Jose at the end of this month, last week. So if you're at the Intel conference, let me know. Um, you know, I'll be hanging around the Bay Area as well. So I'll shout out to my uh, Bay Area peeps. Y'all take care. Have a good rest of the day wherever you are. Remember, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do some big cheers, everyone? <laughs>